And a very warm welcome to the program. I'm Rahel Solomon. In today for Julia Chatterley, we continue to follow two developing stories this hour. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky making a surprise visit to London, addressing the UK Parliament and meeting with Prime Minister Sunak at Downing Street. Mr. Zelensky thanking the UK for its support and bravery in Ukraine's ongoing war with Russia. The United Kingdom is marching with us towards the most, I think, the most important victory of our lifetime. A live report on President Zelensky's historic visit just ahead from London. Plus, the death toll from this week's massive earthquake in Turkey and Syria has now surpassed 11,000 people. Desperate search and rescue operations are continuing. And Turkish President Erdogan visiting parts of his country just devastated by the earthquake today. We have complete team coverage of this still unfolding disaster in just a moment. But first to London, where Ukraine's president has been addressing the British Parliament after making an unannounced trip to the UK. Volodymyr Zelensky thanking Britain for its support of Ukraine since the Russian invasion, saying that the UK has been by Kyiv's side from the very start of the conflict, a conflict that Ukraine is determined to win. Do you have a feeling that the evil will crumble once again. I can see in your eyes now, we think the same way as you do. We know freedom will win. We know, we know Russia will lose. And earlier, as we can see here, Mr. Zelensky held talks with the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at Downing Street. It's only Mr. Zelensky's second trip outside Ukraine since Russia's invasion nearly one year ago. And it comes as Kyiv is urging the West to send more weapons to the country ahead of an expected Russian offensive. Nick Robertson is outside the U.K. Houses of Parliament with the latest. And Nick, you know, I think yet another example of the uh, foreign minister of, excuse me, of Ukrainian President Zelensky really fine tuning his message to the audience, uh, thanking the audience there. Walk me through some of the other takeaways from you, because at times it also was uh, emotional. It was very emotional. I think the whole day has been out of kilter with what's normal protocol in the UK. The prime minister goes out to the airport about an hour's drive outside of London to meet President Zelensky, rides in the car with him back to Downing Street, walks up uh, to the door of number 10 Downing Street. Uh, when President Zelensky walks in, there's huge rounds of applause. None of these are things that we would normally witness when heads of state arrive here. So it's been different from the get-go. And as you say, Zelensky fine-tuning his message, talking about his previous visit here in 2020, when he shared a cup of tea, delicious British tea, he called it, delicious English tea, he called it uh, with the House... uh, with the Speaker of the Houses of Parliament, Lindsay Hoyle, um, but also commenting on the fact that he went into the war rooms in the UK where Winston Churchill led Britain's fight against Nazi Germany and President Zelensky saying that the guide invited him to sit in the same chair that Churchill sat in and the guide asked him, how did you feel? And he said, only now can you really sort of feel and understand the weight of those very heavy decisions. Um, But perhaps his finest and most finely tuned line uh, that was delivering his ultimate message was, in the UK, um, the king is an Air Force pilot. In the Ukraine, he said, our Air Force pilots are kings. 
because there are so few of them and they do such a, a, an, an incredibly heroic job. And he presented Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of Parliament, he presented him um, with a fighter pilot's helmet and written on the fighter pilot's helmet were the words, um, we have freedom, give us the wings to defend it. Um, there was a real message here, that message that President Zelensky and Ukraine want fighter jets. And it's been replied to in part uh, by the British today, the uh, Prime Minister, the government announcing that, uh, that the UK will begin training Ukrainian fighter pilots on NATO standard jets for use in the future. No word that there are commitments on fighter jets right now, but this does seem to be a step and as Britain did in giving tanks to Ukraine, it led the way before the United States announcement, before Germany's announcement. Again, the UK seems to be ahead on that. Uh, President Zelensky, of course, meeting with King Charles uh, this afternoon and will be visiting Ukrainian troops who are training on those British Challenger 2 tanks. And Nick, I believe we'll be able to pull up those pictures of the meeting with King Charles once it happens. But I want to actually stick with that point, this this idea from the UK that it will start training Ukrainians on these fighter jets, but not not announcing, at least not today, that it plans to send those fighter jets. Help me understand how that benefits Ukraine uh, in the long term and what's the thinking here? Part of this is messaging. Part of it is sequencing. Um, the Ukrainians have been ahead of the curve, if you will, understanding what their military needs are. They were asking for air defense systems long before the Russians began bombing their energy infrastructure, their electrical power plants, when that need became really apparent to the West and the West beginning, began to step up to that. Um, what Ukraine asked for in terms of tanks to hold back Russian uh, attempted gains on the ground in the East and take back territory, they've been asking for for a long time. It took a long time to build that, that coalition to do that. The UK led the way. The United States followed with its Abrams tanks and indeed President Zelensky going to Washington, his first trip out of the country uh, during the war, uh, timed when President Biden made that announcement about the Abrams tanks. So I think what we see here, the way to understand, it feels at the moment from where we are today, that while there is still division among Ukraine's allies about whether or not to send fighter jets, and most are at the moment saying um, that's not on the table. When the UK makes a statement and does begin to put into practice training Ukrainian fighter pilots to fly on those planes, should they ever be given, it appears to be a statement of longer term intent. Obviously, NATO has said it will bring Ukraine's military up to NATO standard over time. Um, but it does seem to indicate that that movement towards what Ukraine says it needs now and what, the, what its Western allies have been slow to provide in the past. But it does seem to be a movement down that track. Mm, Nick Robertson, good to have you. Thank you. And let's now get reaction to this visit from Ukraine itself. Fred Plykin is in the capital, Kiev. So, Fred, we know uh, after Zelensky's first visit to the U.S., his first trip out of Ukraine, that was viewed as a success both uh, among the Western world and Ukraine. Help me understand how this visit so far is being received there. 
Well, I think it's also going to be seen as, as a big success, and I think his speech in itself is going to be something that's going to be seen as groundbreaking. I mean, just, just going uh, in front of that audience in that place and speaking in English in such an eloquent way, I think that's something that'll certainly um, do a lot for President Zelensky here at home. But of course, we have to understand that President Zelensky is on a mission, and that's absolutely what Nick was just talking about before. He's right now trying to secure Western combat jets for the Ukrainians. And, you know, before we went to Air Rahel, I was actually... Um, on the phone with the uh, the spokesman for Ukraine's Air Force. And he also said it's extremely important for the Ukrainians to try and get those jets as fast as possible. They've gotten the tanks support for them, and now they want the jets as a next step. And there's ser several reasons for that. And there's strategic reasons and there's tactical reasons. On the one hand, the Ukrainians understand that so far their Air Force has been really outperforming what anybody would have thought. It's still in the fight. Many people believe that's a miracle. They are still operating on the front lines, but there is a lot of attrition. One of the things the spokesman told me is he said, look, our newest jets, our newest combat jets are from the 1990s. And so their stuff is old. Uh, they're having a lot of difficulties getting spare parts. And of course, they're losing jets in combat as well. So they understand they're going to have to rebuild their air force. And that air force is going to have to have Western planes because they're certainly not going to be able to buy any new planes from Russia in the uh, in the near term and the medium term future, uh, at least. And then the other thing they say is that, look, Western combat jets are just much better than the jets uh, that they have from the Soviet Union, from Soviet stocks. The accuracy is better. And also integrating some of those Western weapon systems that the Ukrainians have gotten, for instance, from the U.S., like, for instance, anti-radar missiles are able to use much more effectively if they're coupled with Western jets. Now, the Ukrainians, we know, are looking at F-16s, but of course, they would also be happy with any other Western combat jets that they would get. So I think that this pilot training that they are going to get from the United Kingdom and that being officially announced is something that is seen as a huge victory for President Zelensky and for Ukraine because it sets the groundwork for that transition for Ukraine from to, to, to becoming a modern Western air force that is essentially set in motion with that. And we know, Rahel, that for the time being, the Biden administration, President Biden himself, says he does not envisage giving Ukraine combat jets. But we also know that he said the same thing about modern combat tanks as well. And we've been speaking to a lot of high-level Ukrainian officials uh, here in Kiev and elsewhere, and they are quite confident that it, in the long run, they are going to be getting jets from the West. And certainly this is a big step. Their pilots are already being trained to try and make that happen in the future, Rahel. Look, a lot can change, and as Nick said, messaging is very important, and certainly a lot of messaging from this visit. Fred, before I let you go, please remind us just why, in terms of the timing, why this visit is so critically important in terms of this idea that the window mm -hmm. for Ukraine to effectively defend itself against what we expect to be a major uh, Russian escalation in the spring is narrowing. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a, extremely important for President Zelensky to make that visit now and essentially keep all the allies on board. And I think uh, with that, it's, it, it's very clear that he would start in the United Kingdom because, as he said, the support that Ukraine has been getting from the UK has always been steadfast. The UK never asked the Ukrainians to make any sort of compromises on their territorial integrity. And the UK has always been driving other allied nations like, for instance, Germany, other European nations, and even the United States, to do more for Ukraine. And I think the Ukrainians understand that right now it's important for them to get more support uh, from the West in order to stay in the fight. They know that the Russians are amassing a 
gigantic force, uh, especially in the east of this country. A lot of those offensives are already beginning. They believe that that big offensive could already be in the early stages. So on the one hand, for the Ukrainians, it's about staying in the fight, being able to defend themselves, but also if they get things like, for instance, jets, if they get once they get those modern battle tanks, but also longer range missiles is something that they've also been talking about as well. They believe that they might be able to go on the offensive, but they certainly believe that Russia is about to drastically escalate the fight in the east of the country. They know that the next two months are going to be absolutely brutal. It's something that the government has said, and they certainly need unwavering support and big support from the U.S. allied nations. And of course, they understand that the U.K. so far has been firmly in their corner. And it's something that, you know, President Zelensky today has showed that the Ukraine values and that Ukraine is going to count on in the coming months and the coming years as well, Rahel. And that message becoming just increasingly more important. Thank you for the support, but we need more. Fred Plyken live for us in Kiev. Thank you. The death toll and the devastating earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria has now climbed to more than 11,000. Striking new footage of the damage near the epicenter shows the extent of the destruction as crews race against time to find survivors beneath the rubble. Cold weather making the rescue efforts even harder. Earlier Wednesday, Turkey's president visited an emergency relief area in Kahaman Marash. That's near the epicenter of the powerful quake. He says that the goal is to rebuild the city within a year and acknowledge that the government's response has had problems. On the first day, we experienced some issues. But then on the second day and today, the situation has been taken under control. In some areas, first we had problems in the airports. We had troubles on the roads. But we are more comfortable today. We will be more comfortable tomorrow. Then later, I believe, we will be more comfortable. There are some minor problems with fuel and so forth, but we are handling them step by step. And we will get back to the earthquake in just a moment. But for now, we want to bring you these live pictures of President Zelensky, Ukrainian President Zelensky's visit to the U.K. What we are watching now uh, is his arrival at Buckingham Palace. As we have been telling you this hour, he has met with the prime minister, Rishi Sunak. He has met with the parliament and he is soon expected to meet with King Charles. That is Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky there at Buckingham Palace just moments ago, expected to meet with the King, King Charles, as part of this historic visit to the U.K., only his second time leaving Ukraine since Russia's invasion almost a year ago. Now back to the earthquake. Turkey's health minister said that the government set up 77 field hospitals in 10 provinces. Some of those hospitals will be able to perform surgery. And we'll bring you much more on that in just a moment. But since Monday's earthquake, the U.S. Geological Survey has detected more than 100 aftershocks, some nearly as powerful as the quake itself. CNN's Nick Payton-Walsh is near the epicenter. And we do want to warn you that this report contains graphic images. You can still almost feel the enormity of the tremors here. This is Kakamaran Marash, closest to the epicenter. One older neighbourhood shredded, its family warmth huddling on the street. Dolchek's father is trapped under the rubble here. Only his feet protrude. They can't get him out, but can cover his toes. It would be really nice, he says, if the government had come by. 
Turan retrieved his eight-year-old daughter, wife and daughter-in-law. Pray you never stand over so much of your life. Their final dignity from a carpet. Push down and there are glimmers of hope. These rescuers have spotted a 12-year-old, Mustafa, in the rubble and have to dig down to him. Further along, Ali helped them find his 65-year-old mother. She's in her bed down there, he says. We'll get her out soon. There is not much sign of government here, perhaps as the scale of this is all too massive. Dusk makes the dust and the immense bulk of the mess harder still. The cold, just an insult in the days of emptiness that lie ahead. And the news from the rubble is as often as bad as it is good. A body found here, carried out, and laid next to this man's nine-year-old daughter, Beren. <laughs> the black here hiding the intimate agonies buried in it. The stories with the wrong ending. But suddenly, there is a call for quiet. Hush. They think they hear a voice. A pause, and then the best noise. Joy. Rescuers think they might have found six people alive, but there are hours more ahead of checking. But nothing really goes to plan here, even the joy seems random. Where Ali's mother is being rescued, two young people are unexpectedly found and pulled out. A 16-year-old girl, apparently still alive. Extraordinary moment of joy kind of thing that really all of Turkey is desperately hoping and waiting for. But as the temperatures drop and time goes by, they've all become harder to come by. But extraordinary to see somebody pulled so healthily straight out of this building. Abdullah seems unscathed, almost untouched, by the tremors that altered everything else he emerges into. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN. Kakmaran Marash, Turkey. And Jomana Karache joins me live from Adana, Turkey. Jomana, just hard to even fully fathom the pictures, the stories, the scale of destruction. What's the latest you can tell us there? Rahel, it's, it's really unimaginable what people are going through here right now. We are in uh, Adana, as you mentioned. Okay, they have just called for quiet. This has happened several times over the past few hours. You've got search and rescue teams that are searching for any signs of life or any survivors. They think they have heard something. This is a 14-story building where um, we believe about 100 people were living in that building. Um, and they have been working around the clock trying to locate survivors. But unfortunately, so far, they have only been able to find bodies, people who have been killed in this earthquake in the past hour or so. They found at least three bodies, ten bodies in the past 48 hours uh, before that. And now, as you can see, quiet. They've stopped digging as they're trying to 
Surgency, I mean, so far we've seen this happen um, in the past few hours, and every time it's this disappointment at the end where they are not able to find uh, anyone. I can tell you there are so many people in Rahel here who have gathered, um, waiting, trying to find out what happened to their loved ones, to their friends, their relatives who they believe were inside that uh, building. Uh, one man, just a, a heart-wrenching scene uh, just a short time ago, uh, crying, uh, wailing, saying, why can't they find him? Why can't they get him out? Okay, they're asking everyone to be very quiet, complete quiet. We're going to have to be very quiet. Uh, Rahel, I'm going to have to um, send this back to you as we wait to see what happens because they've asked us all to be quiet here. Absolutely, as a priority remains finding any survivors. Jamana Koreche, thank you. Thank you for being there. Straight ahead, concerns over crucial aid reaching Syria grows after that devastating earthquake. We have more on the humanitarian crisis after this break. Welcome back to CNN. You are looking at live pictures here of rescue efforts in Gaziantep, Turkey, as we know that this is close to the epicenter of this massive earthquake that has now left more than 11,000 people killed. We know 50,000 people have been injured, and this is a humanitarian crisis at this point, both in Turkey and Syria. We will continue to follow these live pictures, but through the damage and despair, we sometimes also get tiny bright spots. On Tuesday, Cruz managed to pull a newborn baby from the rubble in northern Syria. Her umbilical cord reportedly still attached to her mother. That baby is the sole survivor in her family. But as aid pledges grow from around the world, agencies are especially concerned about quake victims in Syria where nearly 70 percent of the population was already relying on humanitarian assistance even before this disaster. Years of civil war have only complicated search and rescue efforts, leaving many to dig through the rubble with their bare hands. One humanitarian organization responding to the crisis is CARE. Its Turkish division has continued its cross-border operations to respond to the worst affected areas in northwest Syria. A team on the ground there is working to deliver blankets, food, mattresses, tents, and more to people in need amid harsh weather conditions. Joining me now is Iham Taha. He is a technical advisor with CARE. Iham, good to have you on the program today. I wish it was under better circumstances. I want to get to the need in Syria in just a moment. But as we can see here, you are in Gaziantep, Turkey. Help me understand from your perspective what you're seeing and what's happening on the ground there. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Online. So basically, I, I, I'm in Gaziantep, and I, as you can see, maybe I'm in, the, in my car, which is the safest as per uh, the security and safety guidance. As we cannot go back to our houses, there is cracked walls or they are actually damaged. So they need to be assessed or unfortunately they are not there anymore. So we are spending the time in cars. Shops are closed. There is no access, limited, there is a, limited access to food items, drinking water. Some few restaurants based on their personal initiatives opened and started to cook some um, warm soup and offer it to people where in, the, in their local neighborhoods, which meant me to me personally a lot because I used to deliver and distribute a lot of hot meals, but I never knew the value of it, to be honest. 
but now I know it very well, unfortunately. This is the situation in, on both sides of the border, and it's unfortunate that both sides are sharing the same pain. In Antakya, Kahraman Maraj, Gaziantep, and many several Turkish cities, and also north of Aleppo and Idlib, there are huge destructions and high number of lost lives. Ayham, you say both sides of the border have obviously equally been felt and hit by this destruction. Are both sides of the border equally receiving aid and support? What does Syria need? Like, very good question. Basically, uh, you know that, as you have mentioned already, majority of the Syrian community now in the northwest Syria, which is the scope of work of care, Turkey, um, geographic scope of work, uh, they are dependent on, on support and aid. And currently, they have been affected strongly by by the by the the snowing and raining, and the cold, harsh winter, which affected their livelihoods, their food consumption, etc. This is happening at the same time with very limited logistic support. The machinery available to rescue people is very limited in northwest Syria. While in Turkey, uh, when the when the earthquake happened, it was very early, energy cut, which made it more difficult for the evacuation team to access, assess, and start rescuing. Which you know that the clock is ticking for both sides of of, of the borders. Every minute counts, and uh, every minute delay that means we might we we might lose the chance to rescue one life. And there is there is a lot of hope still. We are seeing good news of rescuing babies, adults, everyone. But unfortunately, we are also hearing about losing a lot of people, including my colleague who we we learned yesterday that we lost him, his wife, and his uh, lovely daughter. But uh, the rescue team rescued his two-years-old son in Antakya. I'm so sorry for your loss. And, and to that point, I mean, have you been able to locate your staff uh, working in Syria, working in Turkey? Have you been able to account for and locate your staff? Yeah, basically, like our safety and security team immediately, like they, we have a procedure to do that and uh, reporting to care Turkey management and staff were safe, except for Kabul. One of them was Anas, who, who actually was under like under his building, which collapsed on top of him. And um, the rest are, are located now and we know where they are. They are mostly they are going through harsh circumstances. Care Turkey is supporting them. Some of them have been helped to be evacuated to a safer places, nearby cities, nearby governorates in both mm-hmm. Syria and Turkey. You know, we've talked a bit, Iham, about some of the needs in terms of mattresses, bedding, et cetera, food, of course, medical equipment. Can you help me understand, perhaps in terms of infrastructure, what Syria needs in order to make some of these roads passable so that aid can actually get to where it's needed? Like a wonderful question on both sides. And see what for, for Syria, the, the reconstruction is an immediate need now. And this is hitting at the same time as the immediate need. For, for basic needs, like we have elevated some some communities to a next level of immediate need, to livelihoods and, and protection, while now we went back to the zero point where people are looking for food aid, drinking water, very basic, basic needs. And this is, this is really essential at the moment. While in Turkey, the same. Also, the construction is, is needed, but also people are not able to, to access a shop to buy 
bundle of bread because, for example, in Gaziantep, there is no natural gas or energy, so that the bake bakeries cannot produce bread, for example. So needs are really severe in terms of basic needs. Now, for the reconstruction, in Syria, we don't have the equipment, we don't have the machinery needed. It's very limited capacity existed in Syria, while in Turkey, I think the government will have efforts in coordination with different support and agencies to 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 to, do, to start the reconstruction as soon as possible. Mm. And who, who would you like to, to step up? Who would you like to see more support from for that reconstruction effort? I mean, I mean, speaking about resources, like we as Care Confederation, we started resources mobilization immediately to deliver support, whatever, whatever it is, because Care Turkey received several requests from different authority, local authorities in both Syria and Turkey for for different aspects like shelter, food, and reconstruction, of course. And we now we consider every dollar or pound counts because it could one mattress could improve the the living condition or the sleeping night of that young boy who is sleeping on floor outdoors so tent mattresses food items everything is counted so we are working on resources mobilization and having having this opportunity to deliver the reality on the ground and no, no matter how much I, i'm trying to describe it it is still neat comparing to what it is on ground it is like um, very cold for those who are living outside now waiting for any support could be delivered. Aham, you know, we talked a lot about the physical, basic, most urgent needs. I also wonder, though, how concerned are you for both your organization, but also the millions of people who have had to live through this disaster about the psychological impacts, the trauma of living through something like that? I mean, how concerned are you about that? I mean, um, I can give you a, 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 this is sad um, and I never thought about it. I, I considered myself lucky because my son was born outside of Syria in Gaziantep because he never knew like his peers, same age, who are his cousins who lived in Syria and they know about war remnants and whatever conflict materials. He doesn't know, any, know anything. Now, yesterday I was telling him, let's go indoors. It's warmer. He said, no, we have earthquake. We should stay outside. So now kids um, and women are prioritized, but they are severely affected. We can see that on their faces. They have, they cannot express what they feel. Everyone is traumatized now, including myself, of course, but we are trying to get up to speed to, to start the response response and support care Turkey team, with which they are on the front line and our implementing partners as well who are assessing the situation in Northwest Syria and about to start the response as soon as possible once resources are in, in, in hand. It's an interesting point to think about the children, those who are too young to even fully wrap their head around what is happening. Uh, we thank you for your work, Ayham, and we thank you for being on the program today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And our live coverage of the devastating earthquake continues after this break. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to CNN. You are looking at live pictures from the city of Gaziantep, Turkey. The death toll for Monday's devastating earthquake now surpassing 11,000 people in Turkey and Syria. About 50,000 others have been injured, and that's just in Turkey alone. 
Many people are still trapped under the rubble, but freezing weather conditions are hampering rescue efforts. And today, Turkish President Erdogan visited an area near the epicenter. Emergency aid meantime from all over the world continues to arrive in Turkey. Salma Abdelaziz is live at an aid distribution center in Istanbul. Uh, Salma, this is a huge effort, of course, requires a lot of people, a lot of supplies. Walk me through what you're seeing there. I'm in this massive space. It's essentially three hangars, and it's an absolute hive of activity. I want to start by just showing you around. You can see here that these men have formed here a human chain. They're passing down boxes. Each of these boxes is packed with donations, non-medical goods. You're talking about food, dried goods, diapers, blankets, clothes to keep people warm. Every single thing you are looking at has been donated by individuals, businesses, religious groups, mosques all people who just want to help. There's such a sense of solidarity in this place. If you speak to these volunteers, the first thing they're going to tell you is, I can't stop looking at the images of my people suffering in that earthquake zone. I have to do something to help. I can't sit still. And forgive us, I know we're moving around a lot and it looks like absolutely manic, but this is a well-run machine here. Uh, The groups here, the aid groups here tell us they've already been able to get trucks, several dozens of trucks straight to uh, that earthquake zone. And what's really important to remember, Rahul, and I'm just going to keep walking. I'm going to let these men pass through. They've got these big crates. Everything has to move through here so quickly. Time is, of course, of the essence. And the thing everyone keeps saying here is there's a gap, right? The government can't reach everyone. There is not enough resources. You're talking about an area where over 20 million people are estimated to be affected and they want to fill that gap themselves. Let's keep walking through here again. They're stacking these boxes as quickly as they can. They're gonna load them up into trucks and they're gonna drive them straight into the quake zone. Uh, Volunteers, as soon as they arrive, they come in, they sign up and they just start helping. Orders are actually shouted down loudspeakers. That's how they organize this whole big space. And it's so heartening to see all of this because even for uh, these volunteers here, they, they, they've told us, they say, we sat at home, we were so upset, we were so hurt by what we were seeing, and it is here that they begin to feel a sense of solidarity. Yes, of course, you see dozens of countries helping, uh, bringing aid, sending in rescue teams, uh, but for the Turkish community, for Turks, they say they want to help themselves. They want to help each other. They feel that this is the way that they can begin to contribute, begin to alleviate from that unimaginable suffering that we're seeing on the ground. Sama Abdelaziz with a a rare look inside of one of those distribution centers. Thank you. A well-oiled machine, as she said. Well, one of the international organizations helping Turkey and Syria is Direct Relief. The California-based nonprofit is one of the world's largest distributors of donated medical supplies. And joining us now is the CEO of Direct Relief, Thomas Teig. Thomas, thank you for being on the program today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So help me understand how Direct Relief is trying to be of assistance to both Turkey and Syria here. Well, in both countries, Direct Relief has a a history of working with um, local groups that are, you know, doing important work, uh, both in, in Syria, the Syrian American Medical Society, um, in Turkey, ACUT, which is the National Search and Rescue Team. So our, our first step was just to contact them, provide financing, because they had to, to move immediately. And ACUT, uh, we spoke earlier this morning with the director, they have 650 search and rescue volunteers who are deep in the rubble. A lot of the images that you're showing uh, involve them. 
And I think that's the priority now. So I think as the immediate needs are to find the people who can be saved, in the background, there's a large mobilization of what has either been already requested or anticipated just given the size of this disaster. And it's uh, heartbreaking to see, as your reporter just talked about, and, uh, you know, I'd be remiss if you start running into the numbers and the you know, statistics, but the, the loss of life is just a sheer tragedy. And we want to make sure that whatever we can do, and we deal with prescription medications, which are heavily regulated. So we have to be careful working with the World Health Organization, the Turkish government. But, you know, there's massive um, desire to assist. So we're trying to mobilize that. We have a few shipments leaving today that have been requested with specific items. But it'll be a large scale mobilization effort. Um, that will go on for a while, just given the sheer size of this disaster zone that's affected, as your reporter said, 20 million people. It's hard to fathom. It is really hard to fathom the, the level of destruction, especially when you're talking about numbers this large. I think the video sometimes uh, really drives drives how destructive this has been home. Uh, Thomas, help me understand in terms of shipments, how much of this is coming from uh, California versus how much are you able to uh, tap into m- maybe European centers so that it gets on the ground faster? Yeah, in, in, in our case, it's both. I think we have a large distribution center, pharmaceutical distribution center in the states where things will be leaving from today, but also uh, in the Netherlands where we have maintained a large inventories. For the past year, a lot has gone to uh, Ukraine, but I think the ability to drive down from Europe uh, to the border area, I mean, the, the weather isn't great right now, so that kind of compromises it. But the desire on the part of corporations that manufacture this material has been strong. They've been reaching out. They will respond. I think they just don't want to clog up the distribution arteries with non-essential items. I mean, that desire sometimes leads to people's throwing things uh, that aren't appropriate for the circumstances. So just the triage of materiel aid is important to do. So that uh, is the coordination effort that we're undertaking right now with Uh, both the national government, the municipalities, as well as the organizations we've worked with who are both in Syria and in Turkey and operational today. I mean, I think Syrian American Medical Society reported a thousand patients had come in in the first several hours after the quake. Um, So they just obviously it's such a change in status quo that you wouldn't have the supplies to treat all those people and care for them and medevac them. So it's a huge operation that I think your pictures, as you said, do better justice than my words could, but we certainly understand having seen how this unfolds in other areas, um, and it's deeply sobering, and we just want to do everything we can do uh, to help and stand in solidarity with the people whose lives have been upended. And Thomas, unfortunately, we don't have much time, but I did want to ask, because Direct Relief does provide medicine, you know, one thing that we maybe haven't spoken about as much is that Syria was already dealing with a cholera outbreak. Help me understand when a natural disasters like this happen, how that complicates what is already an existing outbreak and how Direct Relief is trying to help there. Yeah, I think these events, they <clears throat> they put an acute injury on top of a chronic problem. And, and cholera is a big one. I think Direct Relief had just sent a substantial... Uh, set of cholera uh, treatment materiel last month to Syria be- to deal with the outbreak. So that actually has all- people who are already vulnerable um, now having to experience being, yeah, as your last guest said, out of uh, shelter, no food, no heat, and a freezing temperature. So it's acute on top of acute on top of chronic. So it's a compounding factor. And I think you just have to deal with them as best you can in sequence um, at scale. And that's what we're trying to to mobilize right now. Well, so much need and certainly um, so good to have organizations like yours trying to help where you can direct relief. Uh, CEO Thomas Tyke, thank you. 
My pleasure. Thank you. And we have just learned that six people, including a child, have been rescued north of Gaziantep. The amazing extraction coming 60 hours after the quake. That information coming to us from CNN Turk. A small bit of good news there. And what is otherwise just massive destruction. Welcome back. U.S. President Joe Biden delivering a spirited State of the Union address to a divided Congress on Tuesday night. The president urging politicians to work together to solve the nation's problems and protect entitlement programs like Social Security. The speech will also be remembered for a series of angry outbursts from Republicans. MJ Lee reports. Because the soul of this nation is strong, because the backbone of this nation is strong, because the people of this nation are strong, The State of the Union is strong. President Biden seizing on a major primetime address to a joint session of Congress to reflect on the past two years. The story of America is a story of progress and resilience. And lay out his vision for the next two. Let's finish the job. Biden describing an inflection point for the country, arguing that the U.S. economy has made a turnaround. Two years ago, the economy was reeling. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs. That the COVID pandemic is now in the rearview mirror. Today, COVID no longer controls our lives. And also touting some of his major legislative accomplishments. I signed over 300 bipartisan pieces of legislation since becoming president. A notable difference from Biden's last State of the Union address, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy seated behind the president. The new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. At times stoic as Democrats applauded the speech. Our democracy remains unbowed and unbroken. And at other times, visibly trying to quiet his colleagues as they heckled Biden, including on the topic of entitlement cuts. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. Look. Still, the president insisting that he will work with the other party. There's no reason we can't work together and find consensus on important things in this Congress as well. Foreign policy also in the spotlight following the dramatic downing over the weekend of a Chinese spy balloon. Biden only making a passing reference to the incident and instead emphasizing America's readiness to compete with China. The guests invited to Tuesday night's speech by First Lady Jill Biden painting a story of some of the president's top priorities and challenges over the past year. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., a reminder of how much the war in Ukraine has tested and dominated Biden's second year in office. We're going to stand with you as long as it takes. Paul Pelosi, husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who was violently attacked in his home and raised alarm about political extremism. But such a heinous act should have never happened. We must all speak out. And the parents of Tyree Nichols, a man whose death after a violent beating by police officers prompted outrage and grief across the country. Let's commit ourselves to make the words of Tyler's mom true. Something good must come from this. All of us in in this chamber, we need to rise to this moment. We can't turn away.
was MJ Lee there. And still ahead, a historic meeting currently taking place between Ukraine, President Zelensky and Britain's King Charles III. We have the latest from London right after this break. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky continues his unannounced historic trip to London at this hour. Mr. Zelensky meeting with King Charles at Buckingham Palace. These are new pictures of that meeting here. We can see uh, Zelensky in his traditional fatigues. And we've also just learned that Zelensky will also meet the French president and German chancellor in Paris later today. Nick Robertson is outside the U.K. Houses of Parliament. Nick, uh, look, both of these trips coming on the back of that major announcement about tanks from Germany, from the U.S., just set the scene here in terms of the importance of this visit. Absolutely. And the UK, of course, the first to give tanks to Ukraine and uh, Ukrainian uh, tank, Ukrainian military uh, uh, soldiers are currently training on those British uh, Challenger 2 tanks. And that's something President Zelensky will get to see. Of course, he campaigned for a long, long time to get tanks and it took a lot of heavy political and diplomatic lifting behind the scenes. But of course, the first callings for it came from President Zelensky, came from Ukraine. And very much that's the case that we're seeing again with his main message today, of course, to thank the British people, to connect with the British people, uh, to thank the king uh, as well, King Charles, who he's met this afternoon. uh, And he made note already that King Charles, he said, the UK's king is a fighter pilot. But he said in Ukraine, the fighter pilots are our kings because they're in such short supply. And he repeated his message that he wants fighter jets. He gave a fighter's jet helmet to the Speaker of Parliament, Lindsay Hoyle, uh, emblazoned on it with the words, we have the freedom, give us the wings to defend it. So um, I think we can expect behind the scenes in his conversation with Prince Charles, which will likely touch on many issues, um, that theme of the King being a former uh, Air Force officer and pilot is something that's going to come up in that conversation. But this is a big day for President Zelensky. It's a big day for all all the... Uh, politicians here, the prime minister, the former prime ministers, uh, Liz Truss, Boris Johnson, Theresa May, whom uh, the Ukrainian president thanked, but also clearly uh, uh, the agenda for him, much broader scope than the UK, going to France, as we've just heard, meeting there with President Emmanuel Macron, meeting, we understand, with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Um, But again, I think central to the themes and all his touchdowns here are going to be the need for fighter jets. As we said, thank you for the support, but we also need more. Nick Robertson, thank you. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World is coming up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.